midst of Christ's crucifixion. And so let's read God's word as always with reverence, uh, but thinking of that uh, fateful day for us. Hear then God's word. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how its body was and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is God's word for us. You may be seated. God, I pray that you would bless and add your understanding to the reading and now preaching of your holy word. Uh, Lord, we would see Jesus, and I pray that we would by the Spirit's power. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are two kinds of people in the world. Uh, There are people who tell you that they have vivid memories of their life before they were five years old, that they can... They have vivid memories. They could think when they were two, when they were three. So there's that kind of person. Uh, And then there's people that tell the truth, right? Um, So one of two types of people. No, we we have a different experience. I think some people legitimately have memories from early age. Others, you know, eight, nine, ten, you know, nothing before that sort of comes uh, to mind. But probably everyone has the experience of, of having a family story which involved you that has been told so many times you don't really know if you have a first-hand memory of it uh, or if you're just experiencing it through the many times that it's been told about you, right? Um, and, and there's something beautiful about this. It's part of what makes uh, culture and, and family so, so rich by God's uh, design. Well, if that's true even on just a, a merely human level and in our experience, how much more true of an event in history that happened before we were ever born and yet has spiritual, real significance uh, for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. What I mean plainly is that every Christian, in one sense, is an eyewitness of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and of his resurrection. Not in the unique, literal way that the apostles, right, or we see the women here, those that were physically present. And yet, what does Paul say to us in Galatians 3, 1, Uh, He says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed 
as crucified, right? Galatia, not Judea, Galatia, far away from the events. And those who had come to faith and who had had uh, Christ crucified preached to them, it's as if they were eyewitnesses. You saw him lifted up before you. Today, we're going to look at eight different witnesses to the crucifixion of Jesus. And my prayer for you, uh, if you're a believer, that you'd be reminded that even today in the preaching of the word, you're witnessing uh, this event that changed everything. And if you came in today and you're not sure if you're a believer, you're not sure if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I, I pray that you would hear the testimony of these eight witnesses and of the word itself being preached to you. Christ uh, will be portrayed publicly as crucified before you today. Would you embrace him by faith? Let's look at the first witness then. Uh, point number one, if you're following in your outline, uh, is the son, S-U-N, uh, the the sun, uh, right, like the ball in the sky, the very thing that my boys ask me to shut off when it's too bright. Um, so they, they think more highly of what I'm capable of, which is great. But uh, the sun itself becomes a witness in our text. Let's look at verse 44 and 45 again. It says, It was now about the sixth hour, that is 12 p.m., and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that is 3, uh, 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed. Well, the sun's light failed. We're going to see that creation itself bears witness to what's happening on this fateful day. But let's, let's set the context a bit. And it, I found this helpful uh, to think back, what's sort of the timeline that's brought us to this moment? Uh, Luke gives us a, a time frame. He, you know, he says, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., darkness came over the land. Uh, well, if we were going to piece back together, looking back over the last few chapters, a pastor by the name of Russ Ramsey puts together this timeline that I found extremely helpful. Of course, there's little things that people might differ somewhat as we look at the four gospel accounts. But in broadest terms, at 4 a.m., from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., Jesus was on trial. This, good, this is all Good Friday. 4 a.m., Friday morning, we saw Jesus on, quote, trial before the high priest. Uh, and then he was condemned by the high priest. From about 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., he was on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor, and then Herod, uh, the Jewish ruler, and declared innocent, we saw, by Pilate, and yet condemned to death. So then about 8 a.m., Jesus would have been carrying his cross to Golgotha, or the place of the skull, uh, or uh, in Latin, Calvary. And at some point, he's unable to go on physically, and Simon of Cyrene is brought in, commanded by the Romans to help him carry the cross. Uh, Mark uh, 15 tells us that at the third hour, that is um, at at 9 a.m., Jesus is then crucified. And so he's been on the cross for some time. During that time, uh, his garments are divided, just as Scripture said they would. Jesus prays for his those crucifying him. There's mockery of him. Save yourself. We, we saw that last week. Uh, there's his declaration to the criminal who has faith in him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And this then brings us up to 12 p.m. when darkness falls over the land. Uh, the Greek word here is eclipto, which is where we get our term eclipse. Um, as providence would have it, we'll, Lord willing, be able to see an eclipse this next Saturday, right? As, as the sun is darkened. It, it, it's an event that has uh, 
a spectacle really that humans throughout history have been drawn to or curious about all the way to uh, having obviously false views of uh, false gods doing something here. Uh, but even in ancient Greek literature, there, there was this motif that at key moments in history, uh, whether something so unjust happening or so powerful happening, uh, the sun's light might be said to fail. Here, of course, it really happens. And can you imagine the Romans? Can you imagine Pilate, who was warned by his wife, who had a dream, and saying, don't have anything to do with this Jesus. And now he's condemned him to death, and, and, the, and the sky itself goes dark. You know, what's Pilate thinking? What are the Romans thinking? What are the Jewish leaders thinking as this uh, moment happens, as the sun's light fails uh, for hours, as Jesus is on the cross? We, we see from the other Gospels that there's also an earthquake happening. Uh, the, the, uh, the sky and the ground themselves. And this certainly speaks to uh, witnessing to Christ's humiliation, as we've talked about of this great injustice of the author of life being put to death on the cross. Creation itself is sort of reeling, as it were, at at the injustice of this. And yet, John Calvin, an early reformer, writes that it doesn't just speak to his humiliation, but it also bears witness to his majesty. Calvin says this, Although in the death of Christ the weakness of the flesh concealed for a short time the glory of the Godhead, And though the Son of God himself was disfigured by shame and contempt, as Paul says, was emptied, yet the Heavenly Father did not cease to distinguish him by some marks, and during his lowest humiliation prepared some indications of his future glory in order to fortify the minds of the godly against the offense of the cross. Thus the majesty of Christ was attested by the obscuration of the sun, by the earthquake, by the splitting of the rocks, as we'll see by the rending of the veil, as if heaven and earth were rendering homage which they owed to their creator. And so we see the first witness. Creation itself bears witness to what's happening to Christ on the cross, that he is the righteous one, dying for the sins of his people. And so I'll ask you, do you bear witness in the same way? Do you receive that testimony, and do you see Jesus for who he said he was? Do you pay homage as you believe, is owed to Christ as your creator. Let's look at witness number two, the veil. Uh, Creation itself we saw, now we turn to the temple. Uh, Luke 23, 45, right at the tail end of that. Just one little line, it says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And so not only creation itself, but the temple itself, the the center of life for the Jewish people, um, And this was good and temporary, but good. God established it this way, first the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the temple. Uh, This was the place where God's people would come and they would uh, sacrifice. Their sins would be forgiven. They could have communion with God in a powerful way, uh, if an incomplete way, as they longed for Christ to come one day. And you'll remember that the veil that's being spoken of here uh, is the veil, uh, there was the holy place, uh, and then there was the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. Uh, in one sense, the very presence of God. And God established this veil, um, and it, it wasn't like these sunshades here, it was thick, uh, a thick veil, uh, that w- meant that only the high priest, and as Hebrews tells us, only once a year would go in 
and make sacrifice for the people. So it symbolized certainly God's presence, but also his, his holiness. That a holy God, surrounded by an unholy people, could only be approached through a mediator and only through blood. Uh, this was the veil. And can you imagine the priests in the temple? As uh, the Gospel of Mark tells us, it was torn from top to bottom. Can you imagine standing there and, and seeing this veil? Earthquakes are happening, the sky is darkened, and the veil is torn in two. Well, what does this mean for us as Christians? The author of Hebrews, that whole book tells us what it means, but it tells us that we now have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Do you catch that? That that the physical temple was torn in two, even as Jesus himself, uh, the temple of God, was was being torn and a new way was being opened for God's people, which you've experienced even this morning, uh, that we can pray for forgiveness and receive forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and, and there's no sacrifice being made here. And because that sacrifice we are witnessing here in Luke chapter 23, once and for all for God's people. Uh, do you bear witness? The temple itself bore witness to what's happening. A new way was opened. Everything would be different for God's people from here on out. Is everything different for you in your Christian life? Right? Imagine if you were on, on death row for 25 years in solitary confinement, and, and one day you were set free. Uh, one day the gates were open, and you were free to walk out and breathe fresh air. Uh, you better believe that that event, that day of walking out of that prison cell, uh, would change the rest of your life, would color the rest of your life, uh, would be the lens through which you saw the rest of your life. Uh, people of God, Christ, by, through his own death, opened a way for you. You can now come with confidence to the throne of grace. You can pray and receive mercy in your time of need. Does your whole life bear witness to this? Let's go to the third witness. We've seen creation, the temple, now the cry. The cry. We turn to Jesus' words from the cross in verse 46. It says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands... Oh. It's done. It's done, right? just, just like the earthquake, right? <laughs> Witness. Okay, we at, least, we at least have that. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Right? Picture Jesus hours on the cross. Um, Hours on the cross already. Uh, Before this, he was whipped to a very inch of his life, couldn't even bear the cross all the way uh, on on, on a physical level. And yet his, his love for the Father, his faith in the Father is such that he cries out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And these are really the final words that we hear from Jesus. And having said this, he breathed his last Right, we've heard many final words of Jesus, even here in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels. Father, forgive them. Uh, elsewhere, he cries out, I thirst. Uh, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. As we sung about, he says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished, and here, into your hands, I commit my spirit. 
Into your hands I commit my spirit. Even as Jesus was praying the words of Psalm 22 from the cross to emphasize his humiliation, to emphasize the fact that he was forsaken, treated as the worst of sinners, and yet, and it's good that we emphasize that, but throughout all of that, he's praying Psalm 31 as these words are drawn from. He knows that he is the Father's. He is in the Father's hands. He is going back to the Father's hands. In one sense, a Jesus then, and, and, and we see others pray similar things, and throughout Christian history, every martyr who has given their life uh, for the faith, they wouldn't have had these exact uh, words, but they would have been able to answer this question in the same way. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I'm not my own, but belong body and soul, life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, do you bear witness to that? Uh, do you believe that you could say, as, even as Jesus says, by the strength that he provides, that in your failing breath, you could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I belong to you. I've been purchased through Christ's death. Not even death will separate me from you. Today I'll be with you in paradise. Do you bear witness in your life and in your death? Let's look at witness number five, the crowd. Witness number five, the crowd, uh, verse 48. It says, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Uh, the crowds then, as we've seen this dynamic, again become those who sort of unintentionally attest to who Jesus is, even if they don't have faith in him at this point. Uh, that word there, it says they had assembled for this spectacle. And it's a great translation. That word means just what you think it means, and with that connotation, that even at the same time that the Romans would go to the gladiatorial battles to see a spectacle, uh, even as many Christians after this would be put to the beasts and, and the soldiers and the sword, People throughout human history have gathered for public executions, the, the sort of morbid curiosity of it. Many are drawn here for these very reasons. They've, they've heard Jesus teaching. They might not care really, but they're there for the spectacle. And even they don't leave unconvinced that this was not like any other day. This wasn't just another crucifixion. They go home beating their breasts, a sign of mourning, a sign of horror here. They came for the spectacle. They see the darkness. The ground shakes. Jesus cries out to his father, and, and they leave, uh, beating their breasts. John Calvin, again, though, warns us that it's not enough in the sense that someone could have come and, and been struck by that day and said, ah, oh, there was something about him, and never come to faith in Christ. Let's return to that thought, turn now to the centurion, number four, who maybe in a similar way, we don't know, but it, the centurion you know, calls out, certainly this man was innocent. As we've said, you know, Pilate even seems to see something in Jesus the rulers don't see, and maybe the centurion and the, and the crowds have a sense of something's not right here or something big is happening here. Calvin puts it this way, though, by way of warning. 
And since nothing more is described to us than the lamentation which God drew from them to the glory of his Son, let us learn by this example that it is of little importance or of no importance at all if a man is struck with terror when he sees before his eyes the power of God until after the astonishment has abated, the fear of God remains calmly in his heart. Friend, if you've come today and, and on a human level, you could be struck by the horror of the cross. Or on, on, on some level, you could say, yeah, I, I'm impressed by Jesus. Man, he teaches like no one else teaches. I have to warn you, friend, that that's, that's not enough. The devil himself knows that Jesus is a powerful teacher. Friend, have you experienced the fear of God that calms the heart, that certainly sees the horror of the cross, but then embraces Christ by faith and says he wasn't just sort of the greatest of all martyrs, he was dying for me. I deserve the cross. He died in my place. And now the cross to me is something beautiful, which seemed so foolish to me, but now when I look at the cross, it's, it's beautiful. It's my Savior dying in my place. Friend, I pray that you would, even today. Uh, as, as we said, uh, Christ is being publicly portrayed to you as crucified today. Please do not just be impressed or horrified, but embrace him by faith as your Savior, lifted up for you. Let's turn to the sixth witness, the, the council member. Uh, the council member, it says there's a man by the name of Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. If you have seen the historical documentary called Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you're familiar with this man. He, he looked much more European than you would imagine. But this man is a Jewish leader, and it's interesting. He's part of the council. He's, he's part of the Sanhedrin. We've been seeing them. Uh, this council, at least members of them, have been mocking Jesus before that. They had their mock trial of Jesus. And this is a good reminder that not every member of that council, not every Pharisee, uh, there were those who were believers. Uh, it says that he did not consent to their decision and action. And it says he was looking for the kingdom of God, which on my first reading sounded like, oh, he's, he's seeking the kingdom, he's close to the kingdom. Uh, but it's interesting, uh, earlier in Luke, this same phrase is used of those uh, who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, for Simeon and Anna and, and others who, who are believers. They're, they're waiting for the Messiah, actively waiting. And then Matthew sort of puts the question to rest when he just calls Joseph a disciple of Jesus. And so we see that at this point he has been uh, perhaps a, a secret disciple. You could imagine what coming uh, publicly to say that uh, he's a disciple of Jesus and a council member what that might have done, but here he is coming out publicly, as it were. I don't think this would be hidden after this. Uh, he bears witness then. Uh, something has shifted as he's seen Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified. Uh, he knows that he has the power to, to procure a tomb, which he does, uh, and to take care and honor the body of Christ. And so he really steps up publicly as a disciple uh, Christian, do you bear witness in the same way, even if it risks your own life? Let's look at number seven, the women. Uh, the women. 
the disciples here. We see them mentioned in verse 49, but then uh, verses 54 through, uh, through the end, it says it was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Uh, the Jews would reckon their day, you might know this, but the Jews would reckon their day differently than ours. So for them, the Sabbath was Saturday, as it was in the Old Testament, all the way until the resurrection of Christ. Uh, but even more different than that, they would uh, consider you know, uh, about 6 p.m. to be the start of the next day. So it would be evening to evening. And so Good Friday is happening, and, and Jesus breathes out his last at 3 p.m., and the body is being prepared, and, and, and there's some urgency uh, because this needs to happen before the Sabbath itself starts, the day of rest. Uh, and so that is sort of, sort of looming over us, and we'll, we'll end on that note as well. Uh, but in the midst of that, you see uh, the women who have been following him from Galilee. Um, and it's striking. You'll remember that Luke emphasizes the female disciples throughout his gospel. We saw in chapter 8 the women who accompany him, uh, the women who are providing for him out of their own means. And, and this would be a, a, something that would be criticized even in the early church as people looked at the church and said, what a weak church. It's full of widows. It's full of orphans. It's, it's full of women who call themselves disciples. This was lobbed against the church in the early days of the church. And yet Luke here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is, is bringing women to the forefront here, uh, emphasizing uh, their role. And, and, and again, Calvin uh, puts it well. He says, And there were also many women there. I consider this to have been added in order to inform us that while the disciples had fled and were scattered in every direction, still some of their company were retained by the Lord as witnesses. Now, though the Apostle John did not depart from the cross, yet no mention is made of him, but praise is bestowed on the women alone who accompanied Christ till death, because their extraordinary attachment to their master was the more strikingly displayed when the men fled trembling. And it's interesting, Calvin then makes the point that I hadn't thought of that um, the, the women then were, were some of the chief disciples who were the literal eyewitnesses of the cross so that Luke and Mark and Matthew, they would have been drawing from the testimony of these women about what happened uh, this fateful day on the cross. Uh, God honors these women and their faith. They bear witness uh, to the death of Jesus Christ. And so, women of God, do you bear witness in the same way? Do you make every preparation uh, in, in your life to glorify him, uh, to point others to him, uh, so that your life is like a sweet aroma drawing others toward faith in Christ? I know you have many callings, wives, mothers, employees, students, uh, but you have one chief calling, and that's the call of a disciple. I remember Mary, just, just a few chapters back in Luke, she sits down at the feet of her master, of her rabbi, and, and says, teach me. Uh, so, women of God, I, I pray that you would be digging into his word and, and, and being used powerfully by him in your families, in your neighborhoods, for his kingdom. Let's look at the eighth and final witness, uh, the tomb. The tomb of Jesus itself. 
It says, Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. And then at the end of our section, then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. All the gospel authors pause here. Certainly the cross in one sense is the, is the height or you could say the, the depth of his humiliation. Um, and yet we're, he dies, he truly dies. Breath truly goes out of his lungs. He, he did not faint. He is truly in the grave. And the gospel writers want to show you that to say, here's the person who procured it. Here's the tomb. Uh, the stone was laid over it. Here's the women who saw it, right? He, he makes a point of saying they saw the, all of these proceedings. They saw where they laid him. Not only to defend the truth that this truly happened, but to emphasize that Christ's humiliation continued as he was truly under the power of death for a time. Now, certainly he meant what he said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so we believe he is, his soul is in his Father's presence on what we call Holy Saturday between the cross and the resurrection. And yet his humiliation continues because his body and soul are separated, as ours will be for a time when we die. His humiliation then continued until breath entered his lungs on Easter morning, as we'll look at uh, next week. And so he was truly under the power of death for a time. The tomb itself was continuing to bear witness that he truly died for the sins of his people. And then it ends on that thought that it was the Sabbath, the women rest according to the commandment. And so that we have on Saturday a very silent day. Uh, we've seen earthquakes and the sun and Jesus crying out. And now we have a day of rest where Jesus is in the grave and there's silence and mourning and wondering from the disciples. But of course we know it's not the end of the story and that he rose again. And many witnesses would bear witness to the fact that he is alive, um, the first fruits of all who would believe. And so people of God, do you bear witness We've seen the creation itself, the temple itself, uh, the crowds, the people, the women, uh, the centurion, all of them bear witness to who Jesus is, the righteous one, slain for us and now risen again for us. What do we do then having heard from these witnesses and seeing with our own eyes? The author of Hebrews tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let us do that, and let us bear witness in life and in death to our Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word, that through it we see Jesus crucified and risen again. I pray that we would be a a, a people a committed to Christ in life and in death, knowing that we belong to you. Now be with us now as we continue in worship, I pray.